top U.S. officials on Tuesday reiterating to their Israeli counterparts that the White House remains committed to diplomacy with Iran. But if necessary, other avenues will be explored to ensure that Tehran does not acquire nuclear weapons. No further details regarding what this might entail, however, were provided. Still, Israeli National Security Advisor Eyal Hulata heading to Washington to discuss Tehran's nuclear program. And there's no time to waste. Iran becoming increasingly withdrawn from the negotiations with the West in Vienna and increasingly involved with geopolitical changes along its borders, namely with Azerbaijan, Turkey, Iraq, and Afghanistan. We're here now with the analysis as a research fellow at the Institute for Counterterrorism at the IDC Herzliya and former senior staff member in the U.S. Congress, Dr. Fadi Ismail. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in person, by the way, finally. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's been a while. Oh, now, wow. let's talk about the geopolitical changes uh, that Iran has been alluding to. Uh, of the countries bordering Iran, you have Afghanistan, which has been turned upside down by the Taliban. Turkey and Azer- Azerbaijan, who are in conflict with Iran, now uh, in concert, slowly chipping away at Iran's borders with Armenia and thus limiting its land connection to Russia. Turkey and Azerbaijan and Pakistan conducting joint military drills along the Iranian border and Iraq, unstable, undergoing major internal challenges. Is Iran about to be trapped by a semi-hostile neighborhood? Well, Iran lives in a, in a hostile neighborhood, and in Israel we know what that means. And it is, of all the stories you've just told, which are all true, the most interesting one to me is Azerbaijan. Because only a couple of years ago, when was it? Recently, when Azerbaijan had a war going on. Yeah, and they took, Iran, uh, yeah, yeah. They took that Karabakh region from, from Armenia. Yeah. We live to see the Azerbaijanis flying their flag with a Turkish flag, alongside the Turkish flag, alongside the Israeli flag, alongside the Iranian flag. I mean, they were all, there was something really strange going on there. They were almost allies at the time. And so what's happening, the, the speed with which things can turn around in this neighborhood is amazing. If I was sitting now in Tehran and looking at the environment around me, there were some parts of it that would be very encouraging to me. Let's not forget, uh, U.S. withdrawal from, from Afghanistan opened a better chance for them to work with the Chinese through Afghanistan. That is a very big one because the Chinese have the Belt and Road Initiative that, co- that coincides with Iran's corridor into the Mediterranean Sea. So that is one thing that seems like positive. On the other hand, it's not going as smoothly as they uh, predicted, because the Taliban, because exactly, because the Taliban are not the same Taliban of the the 90s, and the country is not the same country. Uh, I'm talking about Afghanistan. So their eastern front is not as optimistic as it may have looked a month ago. Um, In the Gulf, there are no good news either. Israel is getting closer and closer and more well-established there. So is the United States. So uh, in the north, uh, recently, they have amassed uh, military um, uh, forces at the borders with Azerbaijan. Now we've already seen in pop culture, we see maps of Iran that include parts of Azerbaijan. So um, I've seen like a few days ago was that graphic. So somebody is already preparing the mindset there for things. Uh, this country since, I mean, is going on a pathway towards troubles with all of its neighbors. But this is basically the ideology of Raisi. Well, so, so do, you see, do you see an armed conflict, a large-scale armed conflict erupting on the borders with Turkey, Azerbaijan, and, and... Could be, could be. I mean, you know, again, it's a new president in Iran. It's not only a new person. He really believes in a whole different way of doing things. Now, will he be able to, to, to convince the mullahs who really run the country? He doesn't really run it. If he, can he convince them, uh, his board of directors, that they should go into that while they're already involved in other conflicts in the region? Let's not forget. Uh, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, 
the Maghreb, uh, probably Libya. I mean, they are everywhere intervening in everything. So are they really ready now to open direct military confrontation? Because everywhere they're working... They can't, can they afford to spread themselves that thin? It's more than that, because in all these countries, they're using proxies. Right. So you, you don't have the sight of many Iranian bodies coming back home in, in, in caskets. But if they open a, a war on their borders directly, as with Iranian military forces vis-a-vis, -vis, that can be a bloodletting they cannot take. So, so, two, so two points here. First of all, we, we know that the northern portion of Iran uh, uh, bordering Azerbaijan and, and Turkey is largely populated by, by individuals who identify as Azeri. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, you mentioned all of the, the proxies uh, that Iran has been working with. Has, can all this conflict and the presence of the Azeris in northern Iran, can that end with, with maybe the supply lines to, Look, to some I, of these proxies being cut off? Since the, 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 the early 2000s, many people were trying to point out the fact that in that neighborhood there's almost 20 million Azeris who are Iranian citizens. Right. Uh, they are Sunnis. They don't buy into all of this uh, Shiite ideology coming, coming out of Tehran. Just like the rest of the country, also most Shiites in Iran are not that extreme like their government is. So while Iran is very good at playing the, 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 the angry, powerful power, and they're really good at it, uh, I think they're really teetering now. I mean, their brinkmanship is a very dangerous game. The name of the game for them is brinkmanship, always going on the edge. You could easily make a misstep. And if they really somehow, by miscalculation, really open a northern front frontier, um, that could be really bad for the regime. So far, it worked for them, the brinkmanship, because they're working through others, and they always had a, a certain level of, of blurred lies that they could play around. Uh, Raisi seems to be a little too sharp, and I hope, uh, sharp in terms of, uh, he is too clear, and maybe this is not good for him. Maybe they want to stay in that area. Keeping, uh, keeping things a little closer uh, to the yeah, best, maybe. Yeah, maybe that is it. All right. Well, Dr. Fadi Ismail, you've, you've given us a lot to think about here, yeah. uh, and I'm sure this is. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more on this topic in the near future. Of course, we will. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In other news, the Israeli government seemingly slowly improving ties with the Palestinian Authority. A delegation from the coalition's Meretz party, including Health Minister Nitzan Horowitz, Regional Cooperation Minister Isawi Frej, and Meretz faction leader Michal Rosin, arriving in Ramallah on Sunday. And the group hosted by Palestinian Authority Chairman Mohamed Abbas, discussing ways of keeping the two-state solution alive. This after Defense Minister Benny Gantz also visited the PA last month. The meeting, however, not sitting well with many, including from within the coalition. Abbas preceded the meeting with phone calls to parents of two Palestinians who were recently killed while carrying out attacks on Israeli security forces. Interior Minister Ayala Shaked, meantime, also rejecting offers to be next, saying that she'll not meet with a, quote, Holocaust denier who is suing Israeli soldiers at The Hague and paying murderers of Jews, end quote. And likewise, at the Knesset winter session opening on Monday, opposition members panning Prime Minister Bennett over the meetings. <laughs> אנחנו גאים בכם מאוד. Joining me with more, Meretz Party Knesset member Mosi Raz. Mosi, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, is Abbas a partner in peace, or are the critics right? Abbas is partner for peace. Uh, Israel is not partner for peace. Actually, it's the first time that the Prime Minister of Israel is saying that Prime Minister Bennett, whom I support, has said uh, my government will not uh, sign on a peace agreement. My government will not sign 
on uh, any agreement, my sign or Mr. Um, Medini, any agreement or whatever transited, or my government will not negotiate to peace. So uh, then you ask if Abbas is a partner while he says again, again and again, we want two peace solution. We want peace with Israel. We want to live side by side with Israel. So of course, uh, President Abbas and the Palestinian people are partners. And uh, unfortunately, right now, the government in Jerusalem is not a partner for peace, but I hope will be in the future. All right, but going, staying on Abbas, after 16 years under Abbas in charge, critics are arguing that these photo ops are masquerading as diplomatic summits uh, and they, that they legitimize a very problematic regime under Abbas. And, uh, you know, and Abbas himself has, has something like an 80% disapproval rating. Ynet columnist uh, Enough Schiff says that Abbas is an administration uh, with non-existent chances of reaching an agreement with Israel, even more so under the traditional idea of a two-state solution. How do you respond? My respond is that in international relations, you don't uh, check how many people support in the public opinion polls the president. Uh, Abbas well, is... Well, you just mentioned that Abbas is a partner in peace and that the Palestinian people, by and large, are also partners, but they don't support Abbas. Of course. Uh, they, uh, many of them don't support Abbas because Abbas um, did not bring an agreement for Palestinian state and peace. Many of them don't support Abbas because of questions of human rights, of corruption, like we say in any other, uh, in any other places. But Abbas is the president. We are not, um, you know, when we when you go, when uh, one meet uh, uh, the uh, leaders, the president of Egypt or the king of or Jordan or other kings, other presidents all over uh, the area, and mm. of course, uh, none of them were elected democratic in a democratic way. By the way, Abbas did uh, elect in a democratic way, but it was, as you mentioned, 16 years ago. Right. Well, so uh, another thing that's really been bothering a lot of people was Abbas's phone calls to the parents of, uh, uh, of the suspected terrorists uh, who conducted attacks in Israel not long before. You know, what, what do you say to the people who say that how can Abbas be a partner in peace when he's continuing to, to promote the pay-for-slay policy? I, I see the, the facts uh, totally different than you, meaning that I think that uh, you did not describe it as well. You say it's suspected terrorists, you're right. They're only suspected. They did not conduct, uh, for my knowledge, anything in Israel. Uh, so um, I don't know what they have done, but you know, well, we I mean, they, are, con they conducted stabbing attacks uh, in Jerusalem against, against Israeli security forces. Whom? The, the suspects. We, we are... So why are not uh, why are they not in jail? I I can't answer that person. But but that's but, that, but that's not to do with my question. My question is is Abbas no, no. has consistently stated that he supports the pay for slay policy. That no matter how many cuts are made to their to their budget, they will spend their no, last check on. Okay, I would say, I, I would say it like I, I will will answer in that way. Uh, in order to understand why the Palestinians pay the prisoners, you have to understand the Palestinians better. Uh, now, 
Israelis don't understand the Palestinians at all. They don't understand why they want a state, why they don't want to be slaves of the Israelis, why they care when... Uh, well, I'm, when not sure that, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, that's quite true. So, Those okay, are pretty sweeping, sweeping so, statements. Uh, so uh, so it, it is true, it is true. Uh, so then, okay, you don't understand why they pay the prisoners. Uh, by the way, Palestinians, and I'm not comparing, but Palestinians don't understand why you pay the soldiers, why you pay the settlers. So um, you, we, in order to understand the nation, you have to try to understand. You didn't understand, you didn't start the first grade, and you're talking with me about the 12th grade. Please, uh, first, we have to understand why they want a, a Palestinian state. Most of the Israelis don't understand that. They say they are not a nation, they are not people, they, have, they, don't, they don't deserve rights. So then you have to understand why they cared when the Palestinians are robbing the, the, the settlers of their land. Most of the Israelis say, this is our land, and so other uh, things that are so, so different from the truth. All right, Knesset member Mosi Raz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. Moving on, the Knesset beginning its winter session Monday and the first Israeli state budget bill in over three years' time back on the docket for debate. But contrary to conventional wisdom, the opposition has been nearly completely absent from all discussion. And so by failing to participate in the committee meetings, opposition lawmakers have by their own hands forfeited the power to influence the content of the budget. Now they can only vote yes or no on the final bill. The question is, why on earth would they do this? Former Knesset member with the Yeshatid party, Rabbi Dov Lipman, with more. Rabbi, it's great to have you back. So why would the opposition, for the first time in Israel's 73-year history, willfully tie their own hands behind their backs? The strategy of the current opposition is to essentially declare the current coalition, the government, as uh, not legitimate. It's not legitimate. You have a prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who only has six members of his party with him in the government. How can he be the leader of the country? And they're trying to portray that to the Israeli public. So they've made a decision to forego being active members of the committees where you actually can raise a lot of very legitimate issues for the sake of the image of this is an illegitimate government. Now, I have to say, I was at the Knesset yesterday during the opening session. Mm -hmm. I saw committees during the morning. They are going into a lot of those committees. There are certain, some of the parties like Shas and United Torah Judaism. They, they feel they have to be there in mm -hmm. those committees to, to raise their voices. But it is definitely a Likud decision, which is the majority of the opposition, that they are not taking part. And I have to tell you the truth, just on the street itself, I don't know how many people are really taking notice of that and if that strategy is actually working. So that's actually my next question. You know, how is the public by and large, reacting left and right. You know, could this come around actually to bite the opposition parties, specifically Likud, uh, you know, in the rear on, on election day? It could. This is a phenomenon when you're in the Knesset, and I certainly felt it as a member as well. You're in this bubble, and you feel like, of course, the whole world is watching Channel 99 and watching the Knesset TV and watching everything that's happening throughout the day, and you presume that's what people's focus is on. And then I leave the Knesset, and I'm living my life without focusing on everything that's happening daily, and you realize the broader public is working hard, raising their families, and here and there, they'll turn it to the news, but it doesn't grab them as much. I, I, if you're asking me, 
I think it's a mistake. I do believe there are certainly aspects of this budget which they could be highlighting in all the committees which they see as flaws, which could speak to their bases. And by the way, the religious parties, United Torah Judaism and Shas in particular, are actually doing that. Uh, and I think that would certainly could uh, much better than just uh, staying out. By the way, they even made a decision yesterday to uh, make a lot of trouble during Naftali Bennett's speech and to get thrown out. They knew almost half the Likud yeah, party a lot of was asked to leave the, yeah. the plenary because the heckling, again, not to be present. And that meant they missed the opposition leader's speech. They weren't there for Netanyahu's speech to show him support. Again, sometimes going with emotion, not necessarily following what the intelligence would say might be the best thing to do. All right, so my final question is, speaking about the budget itself, do you believe that the budget will finally pass? Because again, the, the opposition is, for the most part, staying out of it, or, or at the very least, uh, the larger parties likely could. Meanwhile, the coalition itself is a hodgepodge of very, very different ideologies still, uh, and they need all 61 members of the coalition to vote in favor. From what I've seen, being in the Knesset, talking to members of the uh, coalition, despite their differences, they are very, very determined to get this done. There might be some tinkering here and there, changes in the Finance Committee and some of the other committees that are dealing with it, but they are determined to get this passed. And once they do, that certainly cements this coalition uh, under Naftali Bennett very strongly in place. And the next question will be, what will happen when it becomes Yair Lapid's turn uh, to take over? And that there's still a question mark about. But for right now, it does seem, Aaron, like they're very determined to get this done, and my assessment would be that they will. All right. Rabbi Dove Lippman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now back to the latest coronavirus updates. Israel continuing to see a steady decline in the current wave of infections, the spread rate now standing at roughly 2.7 percent. But the COVID cabinet in Jerusalem is not budging on any new restrictions just yet. In fact, some form of restrictions may even last indefinitely. Israel now three days into its updated Green Pass system, under which all Green Passes issued before October 3 have been revoked. Those eligible to receive a new one must reapply through their HMOs, the health ministry, or either the Ramzor website or mobile app. Eligibility, meanwhile, extending to all those who are one to two weeks past their third dose of the vaccine, even if vaxxed abroad. People who are within six months of their second dose are also eligible, as are people who have serological proof of recovery from COVID plus one dose of the vaccine either from before or after their infection. And the restrictions only just beginning, despite the recent decline in infections. Speaking at the COVID cabinet meeting on Sunday, Prime Minister Bennett reiterating the need to fight off complacency as we enter a new era of living with the virus. <laughs> אבל דווקא עכשיו מסוכן להרפות. דווקא כשהנגיף מתחיל בנסיגה, אסור לנו לתת לו להתאושש. In line with this then, the cabinet rejecting a proposal made by health ministry officials to eliminate some green pass restrictions as COVID morbidity drops. The opposite, in fact. Prime Minister Bennett also outlining how Israel will maintain pressure on the campaign to wear masks and keep the economy open for as long as possible via large-scale testing, vaccine, and management particularly in the Arab sector, which has still been too reluctant to vaccinate. Also, Israel will attempt to prep for future variants while working to end large-scale school isolations, with new infrastructure to support the millions of antigen tests needed, among other plans. Though all that said, three exceptions so far have been made. First, old Green Pass holders were given a three-day extension due to the health ministry's website crashing. 
Second, COVID cabinet ministers approved of loosening the new restrictions to allow school trips to museums and libraries. And third, Green Pass certificates will no longer be necessary to check out books. On the other hand, it's been decided that public venues will be forced to scan the barcode on the new Green Pass documents as a condition for entry starting Tuesday. Green Passes will last for up to six months and will be necessary to enter cultural and sporting events, conferences, exhibits, hotels, gyms, pools, clubs, studios, houses of worship with over 50 people, concerts, festivals, bars, restaurants, cafes, indoors and outdoors, schools, and more. Entrance without a pass as before will be limited to those with a recently taken negative COVID antigen or PCR test. All right, yet again, Israeli archaeologists proving that we are not so different from our ancestors. The Antiquities Authority unveiling the latest discoveries from the Armona Natsiv Promenade in the city of David, Jerusalem. And boy, are they humanizing. Just a stone's throw from the governor's mansion in Jerusalem's Armona Natsiv neighborhood, Israel Antiquities excavators still sifting through a magnificent building that overlooked the city of David and the Temple Mount during the 7th century BCE. The structure initially uncovered roughly two years ago. Probably a palace of one of the kings of the Judean kingdom. This is about 2,700 years ago. We found gorgeous ornamented stones in uh, carved as capitals, window frames, window balusters, gorgeous stuff. And we had another surprise as well, something which was very rare, found in only a few locations in Israel and in Jerusalem. That is someone's private bathroom. It may not look like much, but this first temple period throne was truly fit for a king. The bathroom was hewn by hand from limestone into a rectangular-shaped cabin with a cube-shaped toilet, including a carved-out seat for comfort, a deep septic tank below, and a hole down the middle. And then from within the septic tank itself, researchers finding and collecting a large cache of pottery, animal bones, and soil filler. Archaeologists are hoping that the samples will teach us about the lifestyles and diets of our ancestry. But what we know for sure already is that this property definitely belonged to a member of the elite or even royalty. This is a very rare find because this is something that only the rich people had. A thousand years later, the rabbis and the Talmud discussed what the criterions are for a rich person, how much money he has in his bank. One rabbi suggested that if he has a toilet in his home near the table where he sits to eat, he is a rich person. Though if that's not enough proof for you, the IAA also identifying evidence of a garden with ornamental trees, fruit trees, and aquatic plants on the property, all within reach of the toilet cubicle. You know, because who wouldn't appreciate a poo with a view? Now let's take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight should be cool again as the winter months start to creep in. Lows sitting at about 64 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 Celsius. Then tomorrow you can expect more clear to partly cloudy skies with highs hovering at an average of 84 degrees Fahrenheit or 28 degrees Celsius. And now before we go, let's take a look at what's going viral here in Israel. I feel like something bad is about to happen. This makes me nervous. Why, why, why? Car wash with the windows down. Free shower. Yeah. <laughs> 
He looks way too shocked for, for that situation. All right, that is it for today's news. Today's exchange rate is 3.23 shekels to the American dollar and 2.57 shekels to the Canadian dollar. And finally, for the latest news and updates from ILTV, please like ILTV on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, as well as to our newsletter at ILTV.tv. I'm Aaron Porras. Be well. Thank you so much for watching.